Good evening. In the news tonight, the Principals Union calls for a state takeover of the city's schools. A Queens bookstore has its windows smashed in what appears to be a politically motivated attack. Outdoor diners in the West Village got an unpleasant taste of NYPD-style law and order. Saturday night. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, September 28, 2020. Thousands of New York City Thousands of New York City public school students returned to class today for in-person learning. This came one day after the Principals Union issued a vote of no confidence in Mayor Bill de Blasio and Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza, citing the chaotic reopening of the city's schools this month. The Board of the, of the Council of School Supervisors and Administrators called for the New York State Department of Education to take control of the schools. Aixa Rodriguez of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, a left-wing caucus in the Teachers Union, which has battled the de Blasio's administration's attempt to resume in-person teaching, told the Independent the principals had been in, put in an impossible situation by the mayor and the school's chancellor. And they have to talk to parents. They have to reassure their staff. They have to make sure things go right. And if they can't get clear communication, honest communication, and they find out about things changing that impact their work via the media or an email, it's quite frustrating. And, you know, there's, it's been, it's been a, a roller coaster. And they're the head and the face of their school. And they have to deal with all of the, the anger and frustration that others, um, are showing them out of frustration. They, they have no way of defending themselves or their schools. And they're being asked to pay for devices out of their own pocket, of their own school budget. And so there's a lot. They're juggling a lot. And I, I don't blame them for being angry. Safety concerns have also spurred 150 teachers and staff at the Hunter College campus schools to authorize a safety strike. The strike vote was approved by 85% this weekend. The teachers and staff are demanding Hunter College administrators allow the independent inspection of their largely windowless building on the Upper East Side before resuming in-class instruction. They are represented by the Professional Staff Congress. This is Tina Moore, PSC Chapter Chair for the Hunter College Campus Schools, talking about, talking about why they are willing to defy New York State laws that forbid public sector workers from striking. Well, none of the teachers want to strike. We want to go back. We want to teach our students. We want to have a safe environment. Um, but we're willing to make that sacrifice. We're willing to lose pay for a day, two days, you know, whatever it takes to ensure the health and safety of our entire community. The battle over school safety comes as the confirmed global death toll from COVID-19 climbed to over 999,000 today, with more than 204,000 of those fatalities here in the United States. In election news, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden are set to meet tomorrow night in Cleveland for the first of three presidential debates. On Saturday, Trump nominated far-right appeals court judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill the seat previously held by the, the Supreme Court seat previous, previously held by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yesterday, the New York Times released a bombshell report about Trump's tax and business dealings. According to the Times, 
Trump had only paid $750 in federal income taxes in both 2016 and 2017. Before that, he had paid zero federal income taxes in 10 of the preceding 15 years. Trump denounced the report and repeated a familiar refrain from its 2016 campaign. A couple hundred dollars a year of no income taxes. It's fake news. It's totally fake news. Made up, fake. We went through the same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, totally fake news. Now, actually, I paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. I, it, it's underwater. They've been underwater for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. They Vice President Biden currently holds a seven to eight point lead in most national polls, with Trump running a couple of points closer in key swing states that will determine the winner of the Electoral College and the presidency. On Saturday, Biden compared Trump to an infamous Nazi propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, for his penchant for repeating flagrant lies. I'm not sure... Anybody hadn't already made up their mind there for Trump believes, but who knows? But that's, you know, he's sort of like Goebbels. You say the lie long enough, keep repeating, repeating, repeating. It becomes common knowledge. Later in the show, we will be talking with the co-founder of a group of New Yorkers that is working with other grassroots groups in four key swing states where the presidential race could be determined. Some of the ugliness of Trump's openly racist presidential campaign spilled over this weekend in Kew Gardens, Queens, where the Kew and Willow bookstore had its glass windows shattered. The store later posted on Instagram the text of a voice message apparently left by the attacker who complained that New York City had been, quote, overwhelmed by massive invasions of third world groups whose home countries lacked in uh, this person's message uh, literary prowess. In Meanwhile, in Louisville, protests continued over the weekend following a grand jury's refusal to indict three police officers in the March killing of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT who was shot eight times while sleeping in her bed. Twenty-five, arrest, 25 protesters were arrested on Saturday. Here in New York City, West Village diners discovered there was an extra-large helping of police brutality on the menu Saturday night when the cops pounced on Breonna Taylor protesters who had gathered near the NYPD's 6th Precinct headquarters. The police swarming of the protesters disrupted outdoor dining and sent tables crashing, as you can hear from this video. A dozen protesters were arrested during that incident, most of them for disorderly conduct. Also here in New York City, we're happy to report that the Independence 20th anniversary issue hit the streets today. You can find the special edition in our red and white news boxes on street corners across the city. You can also find it online at independent.org. You can also find out more about our 20th anniversary Zoom party this Thursday evening by visiting independent.org. Our all-star lineup for the event includes Jabari Brisport, Sandy Nurse, Alex Vitale, Reverend Billy, and more. Again, you can visit independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. And speaking of a free press, the final week of 
witness testimony began in the extradition hearing for WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. The court heard about the harsh prison conditions should Assange be extradited. A small prison cell the size of a parking space, a plexiglass window, a slot in the steel door for meals where he will spend 22 hours per day, segregated from other inmates. A U.S. criminal defense lawyer outlined at the Old Bailey in London. Rebecca Miles has been following the hearing and files this report. The first defense witness on Monday morning at the Old Bailey was Yancey Ellis, a U.S. criminal defense lawyer based in Alexandria, Virginia. He's very familiar with Alexandra's detention center, where it's said Assange will be held pre-trial if he's extradited. Ellis said there are four to six units under administrative segregation, also known as X-Block, and a high-profile defendants like Paul Manafort or Maria Bartina were often placed there in protective custody. He was asked to describe the cell. It's a small area, 50 square feet or less, a shelf with a mattress, a metal toilet, and not much else. Prisoners are held in ADSEC units for 22 hours, with two hours outside the cell, but due to scheduling concerns, the hours outside the cell are often offered at odd hours, and so inmates often decline to make use of them. Ellis said ABSEC, or X-Block, is not meant to give a defendant access to talk to other inmates. The defendant is supposed to be by himself, and it's equivalent to solitary confinement. The court heard ADC jail, which can hold 300 people, doesn't have a doctor on site and is a part-time psychiatrist. Let's not forget this is the same jail where Chasey Manning was held on civil contempt sanctions when she refused to testify before the grand jury investigating WikiLeaks. And it's the same jail where, despite being held in general population, she tried to commit suicide. Ellis said his clients go for several weeks without seeing a psychiatrist at ADC. The court has already heard about Assange's depression being on the autistic spectrum and being a high risk of suicide. During cross-examination, Jane Lewis QC asked about equating administrative segregation with solitary confinement when there would be an opportunity for a defendant to meet his lawyers and participate in jail programs. Ellis said when a defendant gets two hours out of his cell, that's an equivalent to solitary confinement. And as for programs for inmates in jails, they generally don't have the capacity or the money to offer anything beyond substance abuse programs. And as for hours meeting with lawyers, what about all the other days? Later, the court heard from Joe Sickler, who has a client in ADX, the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, who's been there for 22 years. Sickler said during cross-examination that ADC Virginia was a very well-run jail, but it doesn't change the fact that the conditions are torturous. This is the final week of testimony. Then barristers will take a month for written summary, summaries due in early November, and Judge Barrister will have two months to make a ruling on extradition with an announcement in January 2021. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. This is the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. I'm John Tarleton, the editor-in-chief. Tomorrow night in Cleveland, Donald Trump and Joe Biden square off in the first of their three presidential debates. But as the presidential race enters its final five weeks, there's barely any sign of it here in New York. After all, New York is a deep blue state that recent Democratic presidential nominees have routinely won by 20 points or more. 
However, one group of New Yorkers is determined to make a difference by getting involved in a strategic way in some of the half dozen or so swing states where victory in the Electoral College will likely be determined. The group is called Water for Grassroots. We have an article about their work in the new issue of The Independent that hit the streets today. And joining us this evening to talk uh, more about this topic is Peter Hognes, co-founder of Water for Grassroots. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks. Hi. Great to have you with us. Uh, so you all are active in four key swing states at the moment. But before we delve into that, can you describe uh, what gra- Water for Grassroots is and why it was started and what you all have previously done in other races? Yeah, sure. Um, well, like uh, we we came together in 2017 in the wake of the 2016 election. And um, there were a lot of groups forming trying to figure out how to deal with the Trump presidency, how to make sure he wasn't reelected, how to change the political terrain in the swing states. Um, Many of them, like um, Sister District or Swing Left, had a candidate focus on helping elect uh, progressive state legislative candidates or congressional candidates um, in the swing states. Um, And we take a kind of different starting point. We start from looking for progressive and left organizations that have been doing multi-issue organizing 12 months a year, and that use that kind of community base to play an especially effective role at election time. And they lead us to the right candidates. Um, We think in an election where who turns out, how many voters who are maybe not convinced that politics offers that much to change their lives, how many of those folks decide to come and vote out Trump? A community-based organization that's been working there, you know, month in and month out, is often in a much better position to engage with those folks than a candidate's campaign that just kind of shows up right before the election and tries to extract the vote and move on. And uh, can you describe a, a couple of the groups you all are working with this year and how you all yeah, are sure. able to talk to them? Thanks, sure. Um, one, actually, give us a exa- good example of our model, kind of a uh, new Florida majority. Um, it's um, been around for a few years working uh, to build political power of marginalized communities in Florida, um, especially uh, black and brown communities and others also. Um, they played a really central role in passing the Florida referendum in 2018, restoring the right to vote to folks with a past felony conviction, which, as written and as voters intended, would uh, restore voting rights to 1.4 million people. Um, since then, the uh, state legislature have been working to uh, undermine that, and that's still being fought out in the courts. Um, but we were working with them already on Amendment 4, what that referendum was called, and a month or two before the 2018 primary, they said, hey, would you all also support us working for this guy who's running for governor, Andrew Gillum, um, would have been the first black governor in Florida's history. He was running on a very progressive platform like minimum starting salary, which is for teachers, was very low in Florida. He wanted to put it at 50000 and tax the rich to pay for it um, and Florida's racist standard ground laws and so on. Gillum, on this very progressive platform in a state that's just 15% black, he came within 30,000 votes, less than half a point of winning election in 2018. Um, and, um, you know, that's we wouldn't have been working on that race if we hadn't had the relationship with a new Florida majority. It was both heartbreaking that he lost by so close and encouraging for the potential of the state's future. Um, and you want me to mention another group or that's uh, – I guess uh, – uh, 
Yeah, the group you're working with in Pennsylvania, which is uh, only a, a few hours drive away for uh, people here in the New York area. Sure. Um, the main group we're working with there, um, oh, one thing I don't want to not mention with New Florida Majority is they're one of the t- top two voter registration organizations in the state by number of people registered. So they not only have a very kind of left point of view, but they know how to get the nitty-gritty work done. Uh, likewise, with Pennsylvania Stands Up, it's a new statewide network with nine chapters, um, two of the groups that we'd worked with before they helped form it, um, Pennsylvania Stands Up, were Reclaim Philadelphia, um, which came originally out of independent Bernie Sanders organizing in 2016, um, and Lancaster Stands Up in Lancaster County. Um, there's also some indivisible chapters that came into it and several other groups. Um, anyway, Pennsylvania Stands Up, um, I mean, sorry, Reclaim, we, we were actually a group we first worked with in 2017 when uh, Larry Krasner was running for district attorney on anti-incarceration program, uh, vowing to, um, you know, and, and move towards ending cash bail and a bunch of other really basic reforms that in what was the most incarcerated big city um, in the U.S., Frank Rizzo's town, um, have been making a huge difference. So we worked with them on voter registration and get out the vote in that effort. And then Lancaster stands up. Um, folks might have heard about the progressive populist Jess King, who ran in uh, Mennonite and Amish country in south central Pennsylvania for Congress and raised, made a, a surprisingly strong challenge to an incumbent pro Trump Republican. Um, it's a good example of the value of working with organizations because although Jess King did not win the race, she got, I think, 43%, 44% improved on Hillary Clinton's standing in that district by four or five points. Um, but in the course of that campaign, Lancaster stands up, which had only existed when it started in Lancaster City. They grew to have, like, satellite chapters in another I think about 10 small cities and towns in Lancaster County and the sister group in the next county, York, stands up and grew to over a 1,000 dues-paying members um, through that campaign. So they're starting off with a much stronger organizing base because they were putting organization first, not the candidate first. Right. And as far as what's happening right now, five weeks out from the presidential election, what specifically is it that the volunteers that uh, – Water for Grassroots are, are able to do to, to help these groups? Well, we've been doing a lot of phone banking and texting, and that has many different forms. If folks want to see the specifics, a good place to go is our uh, volunteer calendar on our website, Water for Grassroots. You can numeral four or spell it out. doesn't matter, waterforgrassroots.org slash calendar. Um, texting and phone calls for voter registration, and Pennsylvania has online voter registration, so that's promising. Um, and traditional kind of get-out-the-vote type phone calls and texting, um, and also what's called deep canvassing, where you're aiming for longer conversations that are more personal, more experience-based, a lot more listening than talking, and that's been shown by research and practical experience to be especially effective in uh, moving folks. I should mention one thing we're doing that's just starting up. Um, I think in general – a lot of folks would agree that the Biden campaign has been extremely cautious, um, slow-moving, not nimble and reactive, and there's been a really strong interest among New York progressive activists in um, just starting to do some in-person work in a way that would be COVID-safe. Um, you know, and we're going to be starting to, um, through a partner group that's very similar to us, Seed the Vote that began in California. Um, we're working with Working Families Party there to do um, – 
visibility work around 17 early voting stations in Philadelphia to just promote the fact that starting Tuesday, you can not only go and vote on the spot, but if you're not registered, there's a three-week window where you can show up, register to vote, and vote right then all at once, get it done. Um, so we think that could make a big difference and increase the base for progressive politics in uh, Philadelphia for the future. Right. And, and uh, just so you know, people who understand it, maybe don't follow the presidential election super closely, I mean, the reason these swing states matter, I mean, of course, the presidency is decided through the Electoral College, and, and most mm-hmm. states are certain to, you know, go, you know, either for Trump or Biden, but there's, you know, roughly a half dozen states where if there's a, a close election, the, the outcome will be determined by what happens in those states. And in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. this year is really shaping up as perhaps the, the sort of decisive tipping point state that even a, a few thousand votes one way or the other in a, in a close uh, contest can make all the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one advantage of working with groups that are going to still exist the day after the election, that have a long-term perspective, um, is that they take local races very seriously at the same time. So by instead of just, you know, getting on the Biden campaign dialer, I'm, I mean, look, if somebody wants to do that, more power to them. But working with a community organizing group allows you to help beat Trump, build that organization's strength for the future, and also elect progressives and help defeat Republicans in other races. Like, there's a very good chance this year um, that progressive and left activists will be able to help flip the uh, currently Republican-controlled state legislature in Pennsylvania, which would be huge in terms of the impact on redistricting and ability to elect more left-wing candidates in the future. All right. Um, they also they was reclaimed as some. Um, they've also put a number of community activists, labor activists, uh, socialists into the Pennsylvania legislature. Um, folks might have heard of uh, Nikhil Saval, Rick Krajewski, Summer Lee. They right. Right. Been, been there, they've been pushing the bound, the, what's the boundary of, you know, political conversation and options in, in Pennsylvania pretty pretty fast um, over the last couple of years. All righty. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Peter Hogness, co-founder of Water for Grassroots, thank you for joining us on the WBAI Evening News this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You bet. We'll be back with more after this short break. There's already so much pain, so much pain, so much pain. There's already so much pain, and there ain't nothing else we can do. Fight by Wyatt Waddell. You are listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website celebrating 20 years of publishing this fall. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can do so by calling 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602 or go to 
give2wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. Uh, for our second segment uh, in our last few minutes uh, tonight, we're going to look at a neighborhood and its green spaces, a big chunk of which could soon disappear under bulldozers if the New York, if the city of New York follows through on a flood protection plan that has put a 58 acre waterside park in peril at a moment when we need all the fresh air we can get. Uh, to talk about this and more, we are joined by Charles Krizel of East River Park Action. Charles, it's good to have you with us this evening on the WBAI News. Well, thank you, John. It's nice to be here. Thank All right. Thank you for bringing this to the public. Right. Yes. And, and uh, unfortunately, we just have a, a few minutes here, but uh, can you tell us about the East River Park, the city's plans for it, and, and where things stand with the struggle to preserve the park? Well, we, we brought a lawsuit against the city to try to stop the park. Uh, we... Uh, with an alienation suit that would require the city to go to uh, state legislature. We lost the suit. We're in appeals now. Uh, we're hopeful something will come out of that. Um, right now we're, we're fighting the clock. The, the city is planning to start bulldozing in, in November and close the park down for at least five years. Um, they're spending a billion and a half dollars uh, of the city's money, which in the city is obviously broke. They're going to lay off 22,000 employees, and they're still going to spend this money to destroy a park that's really used by the community, very much loved by the community. And it's a health issue right now. It's COVID, being able to go outside, using green space. All these issues are coming together at one time, and um, we're really disheartened by the whole thing. Mm. So we're trying to fight the schedule. Uh, we're trying to fight the schedule, fight the power, I guess. Uh, we have a petition online to try to appeal to the governor to step in to stop this. Uh, if you go to our website, eastriverparkaction.org, that's eastriverparkaction.org, you can sign the um, petition. And uh, we're having, I'm also president of Lungs, which is located on the United Neighborhoods Gardens. This weekend we're having our ninth annual Harvest Arts Festival in the gardens. And part of that is going to be some tabling by East River Park Action to try to explain to people, bring it to the forefront of what we're struggling with to save the park. Right. And, and more than I understand more than 30 gardens are going to be open uh, this weekend uh, for the festival. Uh, for people who don't realize that the, the neighborhood has this incredible collection of uh, community gardens that the community really fought to preserve over 20 years ago. Uh, so that, that it's, it sounds like everything will be COVID safe and people can come outside and, and enjoy these gardens this weekend. Yeah, we're going to be uh, totally uh, uh, socially distancing and wearing masks and everything, but we are going to be open to the public, or some of the gardens are going to be open to the public. Other things are going to be in front of the gardens. There's going to be music, uh, some theater, and lots of art on the fences of the gardens. So we're hoping for a good turnout and um, – Hopefully, people will be able to enjoy themselves for a couple hours on Saturday and Sunday, this coming Saturday and Sunday. So if you go to the LUNGS website, it's LUNGS, L-U-N-G-S-N-Y-C dot org, the schedule of all the events is going to be on there, too. Okay. Well, I hope a lot of people make it uh, make it out to the festival. I've lived in that neighborhood for a number of years, and, uh, again, the gardens are a real jewel uh, for our city. Uh, 
Uh, but we'll have to leave it there for now. Charles Krizel from the East River Park Action and uh, thank you for joining us this, this evening on the WBAI Evening News. Well, thank you, John. Fight the power. You bet. Always. Alrighty. Uh, we'll, uh, before we leave, one more time, I want to encourage everybody who can do so to give generously to WBAI. 516-620-3602. And finally, a special thank you to the Independents, Amba Gagarian, Renee Feltz, and Leah Duran for their help with this evening's show. You can follow the latest news from The Independent at independent.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back same time next week. Coming through right here.